and welcome back to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette and I'm with Tom Bennett of City University and Paul Wragg of Leeds University. And we're here to catch you up on all the media law related developments from the summer. We'll be discussing an Australian decision that found media outlets responsible for readers' defamatory Facebook comments, John Stossel's defamation claim against Facebook for fact-checking labels, some of the proposals for the new UK GDPR, the newly enforceable Children's Code, the Nirvana Baby lawsuit, Ben and Deborah Stokes' privacy settlement, Kai Kurd's poor joke, and finally, a Danish artist who has literally taken the money and run. So starting with the Australian decision, an Australian Court of Appeal has found that media outlets are legally responsible as publishers of Facebook comments from the outset because they encouraged and facilitated the comments by having Facebook pages in the first place. It was immaterial for the courts that the comments were deleted after the outlets became aware of them. The justices were unconvinced by the media outlets' attempts to portray themselves as passive and unwitting victims of Facebook's functionality because they could not, at the relevant time, disable the comments. The court found that, having taken action to secure the commercial benefit of Facebook's functionality, the appellants bear the legal consequences. David Rolfe, a defamation law expert at the University of Sydney Law School, says that the judgment confirms that you don't have to prove fault. All you have to prove is the voluntary act of participating in the dissemination of the, of the defamatory matter. So I wondered, and based on this decision, are there any defences really left to media outlets who enable comments, um, enable comment functions on articles posted on social media? This seems like quite a, a damaging judgment against them. Well, it's an interesting one, certainly. Um, the, the, the difference between the Australian approach and the approach that we take to publication here in England is, I think, uh, key to answering your question. What struck me about this judgment of the Australian High Court, which is, of course, the, the equivalent of our Supreme Court, um, in this case called Foller and Fairfax, is uh, just how highly formalised and how rigid the Australian uh, doctrine is on publication. So whilst there is in Australian law an, uh, a defence of innocent dissemination, which, uh, like in English law, would apply to um, inadvertent republishers of information. So the library or uh, the shop that sells the book that contains a libel. There's a defence for them. The Australians don't conceptualise this as uh, meaning there is no publication. Instead, the Australian High Court is clear there is a publication, but there is a defence to that publication. In England, we've rather elided the two. So where you have an innocent dissemination uh, defence, we essentially say, you know what, you're not really a publisher. Um, and the case falls down at that point. Now, because this is uh, this was in essence an interlocutory appeal, the case has yet to go to trial. Uh, the, the appeals were all heard on this preliminary issue of whether or not there was publication. So now this case would be remitted for trial, and it remains to be seen whether um, defendants are able to raise a workable defence. It may well be 
that the innocent dissemination defense comes back into play at some point of trial. But what it doesn't do, and the High Court is absolutely clear uh, that it does not do in Australia, is absolve a publisher of having done the publishing in the first place. Um, Obviously, things would work somewhat differently here. I suspect that our innocent dissemination defense, um, because we conceptualize it differently, would would stand a better chance of... uh, availing the defendant in these circumstances, and I'm thinking back to cases like the the, the Google case. Um, uh, Google was found not to be a publisher of uh, the hits that appeared after certain search terms were entered into Google um, because it was controlled by an algorithm, and I suspect something similar would be argued uh, in respect of Facebook, but you know, the, the, the basic principle that the Australian courts are going to keep coming back to here and will hammer home the point, and there is some legitimacy to it, is that if you knowingly solicit comment, then you are prima facie responsible for the content of that comment. And this was always going to, to come up at some point as an issue. Um, it is, as I say, for me, the most interesting thing methodologically is just how highly formalized the decision is, how squarely rooted in a very narrow and rigid reading of black letter doctrine it is. But this is the Australian High Court, and that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, and uh, I mean, one of the things I appreciate in this uh, judgment, obviously I agree with everything that Tom's just said, but I do like the um, introduction of accountability uh, for the media uh, where it does enable um, uh, wrongs to take place, in this case defamation, if in fact that is proven uh, and there isn't a defence to it. So I'm never convinced by this idea that, well, we can't be responsible for comments that are made because if if that forum didn't exist, the comments couldn't have been made. So I think I think the decision in principle is is correct. I suppose the other thing to just note about the Australian system compared to our own is that uh, uh, the law is in some respects cleaner than ours because they don't recognise freedom of speech in quite the same terms that we do. And so freedom of speech arguments uh, can't make the landscape murkier as they do in this jurisdiction and in the American jurisdiction because it just doesn't exist to the same extent. One thing that struck me about the judgment though is how much the court draws on the choice that so that um, media outlets have to host their content on social media and and they seem to kind of use that as as the excuse for saying or exp- not excuse but explaining why they are then they owe this responsibility but i just thought well given facebook's dominance in advertising these days a lot of social a lot of media outlets don't have the option to not engage with social media and so I kind of wondered whether it was actually not it's it's not really a choice and so emphasizing that choice so much in the judgment in reaching that conclusion is maybe a bit unfair on media outlets who've had to turn to social media as a commercial necessity rather than anything else. I'm not I'm not very sympathetic to that I mean I kind of think uh uh, the, the press, the media generally are, t- are, t- are too quick 
to want the benefits uh, of a free speech principle, but not accept the burdens uh, that that come with it. Um, I think, I mean, I, I don't know whether this applies in this case, but um, but uh, a, a responsible publisher, an accountable publisher, often has a choice as to whether uh, to make comments available on certain pieces. So if, uh, if, for example, the BBC thinks that a piece is just too contentious and is likely to attract uh, defamatory comments or hateful comments or anything like that, it just switches off the, the comment function. If it's a cute story about cats, they, they leave the comment function on. Um, that's and I appreciate the BBC has certain responsibilities that uh, print print journalism doesn't. But I mean, if we extrapolate that kind of thinking, I think we need to see the availability of comments as something broader than simply binary terms of having it or not having it. Sticking with uh, Facebook for the moment, John Stossel, the former. Fox Business News host in America has filed a lawsuit against Facebook, alleging that the company has defamed him by appending fact-checking labels to two videos that he has posted about climate change. Stossel's claiming $2 million for reputational harm and reduced viewership that he alleges occurred as a result of Facebook's labels. Uh, He says that one of the labels falsely attributed a statement to him and another labelled the video partly false without actually challenging any of the facts in the video. The claim's just been announced, and so uh, it's, it's in its very early stages. But I think it's going to be an interesting one to watch because it essentially assumes that Facebook are now the arbiters of truth, because if one could, like, one can only be defamed by a fact-checking label if viewers accept that the label was correct. But who's the one writing the labels. So, yeah. Well, this, this, of course, is a problem of... Uh, this is a problem that happens when organisations wade into uh, misinformation and disinformation uh, contexts and try to help out and, and label things as misinformation for others. The, the same drivers that apply to the original purveyors of information that they might have dishonorable intentions can also apply to the secondary level uh, and the tertiary level and any other level uh, that tries to weed out mis- and disinformation. This is just a natural consequence of thinking that we can make these sensible choices for other people about what is true and what is false. At the same time, though, we need to recognise that libel is the weapon of choice for those that have an agenda to push, particularly where that agenda is hostile to conventional thinking. I'm thinking here of Holocaust deniers in particular. They always resort to libel first. Now, let me be clear, I'm not trying to put this person in the same bracket as Holocaust deniers. However, It is something that we just need to be aware of, that people do try and use libel as a way of gagging criticisms of them, especially legitimate criticisms. It is, of course, far harder to do that successfully in the United States, um, where uh, speech about a public figure or on a matter of public record... um, is almost certainly going to find itself protected under the Sullivan Doctrine under most circumstances. 
but only if you have the money to be able to defend yourself to get yourself into a courtroom to explain it to a judge yes presumably facebook does have sufficient capacity. yeah well, i'm not really talking but here about facebook facebook right, can look after itself. A, you know and when for you know if you had some citizen helpful citizen fact checking twitter individual just going around fact checking things on twitter then yes there's you know them being squashed by a uh, a libel claim becomes much more possible all right let's come back to the uk then um because we've got the new proposals for the uk gdpr that the government's launched just this month um or, well it's now october on the day of recording the proposal was launched in september uh, and closes on the 19th of november for submissions to suggest how the G- uk gdpr should be updated Hall talk the privacy and data protection blog ran an interesting piece that raised concerns over the government's proposals for processing personal data for research purposes one of the proposals is to consolidate current data protection law concerning scientific research purposes which is at present scattered across uk gdpr and the data protection act 2018 Scientific research already has a broad, non-exhaustive definition in Recital 159, and the Hall Talk article asks whether the suggestion to broaden this further is perhaps because the government is intent on defining research in terms not specified by current legislation, and as the consultation is silent as to what research actually means, it could theoretically include market research and research into AI algorithms like the ones that were used by Cambridge Analytica. So um, if readers are interested in this particular aspect of data protection law, do go and read that whole talk article. It's um, very enlightening. Sticking with GDPR briefly, the Children's Code, uh, also known as the Age Appropriate Design Code, came into force on the 2nd of September following a one-year transition period. This is the code published by the Information Commissioner's Office that seeks to regulate the provision of online services to children and provide influential guidance to businesses regarding how to build services in a way that complies with UK data protection law. The code features 15 flexible standards of age-appropriate design to reflect the special privacy safeguards children require when online. These include a prohibition on any detrimental use of data that goes against industry codes of practice, geolocation and profiling has to be switched off by default, and nudge techniques, these are the design features that encourage users to follow the designer's preferred paths in the user's decision making, are discouraged for apps and services that are designed to focus on children. The code is not new law, but is a statutory code of practice under the Data Protection Act 2018. And it's been uh, heralded as a positive step towards better protection of children's privacy online. But it doesn't address the difficult question of sharenting, which is where a child's right, which asks whether a child's rights to privacy are essentially lost when parents share their images online. The Nirvana baby lawsuit in the US raises these issues and Tom was joined by Alexandros Antonio to discuss these issues further. Yes, indeed. Uh, Listeners will remember Alex from uh, a previous podcast, a longtime friend of the podcast. Uh, 
I started by asking him just what this case is all about. It seems to me that the, the, the case centers around an image which one might say it's, it's an iconic image, it has decorated our visual culture since 1991, that is since um, the Nevermind album of the legendary band was released. So the, the album went on, it did quite well commercially, sold about 30 million copies. And as I said, I think that the, the image itself helped propel the album's widespread recognition. I think it's, it's, it's a memorable um, cover. Now, um, the person that features on that cover is Spencer Eldon. Um, he recently brought um, um, a, an action against 15 defendants. 15 defendants were listed on his uh, lawsuit. Those 15 defendants include um, a couple of record labels that were involved in the distribution of the album. Um, the surviving members of the band, including um, a guitarist who was not uh, part of the band at the time the photograph was taken. Um, the managers of the estate of Kurt Cobain, who was the lead singer of the band, etc., etc. Now, what he claims essentially is that uh, those 15 defendants um, violated federal criminal law in three ways. The first is that the image of Elden on the cover, at the time he was a um, few months old as a baby, um, is inherently an image of child sexual uh, exploitation. Colloquially, that's known as child pornography. The second claim is that all the defendants knowingly produced, possessed, and advertised child pornography. And then the third primary, or the third main ground was that the band benefited financially from their participation in Eldon's um, sexual exploitation. So what we have here is uh, essentially two different interpretations of that iconic image I mentioned at the beginning. Um, the image was originally inspired by Cobain's idea of waterbirds. It was shot in LA in an aquatic center. Um, and some fans have interpreted that, that image as a comment um, on the values that our society uh, imparts to younger generations. But the same image is interpreted very differently in that particular lawsuit. So the lawsuit, if one reads it, I think it will become obvious that it attempts to weave in the idea that this image was designed to elicit a sexual response from the viewers. And I think it goes so far as to say that Eldon is portrayed on that cover as a sex worker, uh, grabbing for a dollar bill that's positioned dangling from a fish hook in the front of his nude body. So essentially the question, one of the questions that arises here is, okay, well, is this a, a valid case of child pornography? Well, under US federal law, there are six factors that 
who could determine whether a particular depiction of a minor constitutes uh, child pornography. They are known as the dosed factors. Well, I won't go through all of them, but I think what's central in this case is whether this particular image is a lascivious exhibition of the genitals of the pubic area, a lascivious exhibition of the intimate part of the child that's depicted. Now, this has been interpreted by case law as a depiction that has to appeal to the viewer's prurient interests. So it needs to incite sexual stimulation, it needs to incite, to incite gratification to the viewer, and there's need to be an intention to do that. But some people would say, well, what's pretty clear from that image is that that's not the purpose. It's not intentionally focused on the baby's intimate parts. What you notice first is essentially the foreground. So it will be very difficult to say that this picture was designed to appeal to the viewer's prurient interests. Now, you've written recently uh, a piece on the conversation uh, and... Uh... Anyone listening who, who wants to read it can find it um, fairly easily there, and I certainly recommend it. In that piece, you go on to talk about the implications that cases of this sort might have, not in terms of child sexual abuse, but at the level, uh, the, the, the much less serious level, of the parental sharing of images uh, of, of their children during their upbringing on social media, something that we call sharenting. Um, we, we've, we've, we've heard that term before, and indeed we've spoken about it on the podcast before. I, I wonder if you could just outline for us your, your thoughts on that issue as you yeah. uh, address them sure. in your piece. Well, um, I think the, this, this angle of that story was... Um... I, I thought it was important. Why? Because uh, reading about this, I came across some older reports about how this image came to being. And it struck me um, that when um, the photographer, uh, his name is Kirk Weddle, when the photographer that was working on the cover um contacted uh, Spencer's um, parents uh, in actual fact, or, well, I mean, um, um, what perhaps, you know, might be become obvious from reading about the case is that the, the father of the baby and the photographer were friends. So Kirk Weddle um, reportedly called Eldon's dad and um, he said, well, uh, hi, hi, Rick. Uh, do you want to make 200 bucks and throw your kid in the drink? And this is this is what Eldon's dad recounts. And then he goes on to say, well, we had a big party at the pool and no one had any idea of what was going on. So I was wondering, you know, okay, well, the, I don't, you know, we are not in the position to know um, what were the circumstances the precise circumstances of Eldon's parent choice and whether they thought about, you know, how this image was to be used in the future. But fast forward to today, I was thinking, well, 
you know, parents nowadays have a, a, a dual role. They are not only parents, but they have they are in a position to be also publishers. And whilst at the time, you know, it was a question of whether I would throw my my kid in the drink. Now it's perhaps a question of whether I take a picture of that or, or, of my child, and then I just throw it into the rough virtual waters of the internet. So at the time, at the time, you know, the, the, there is a potential argument that say that okay, to, to publish a photograph of the baby with their intimate parts exposed is likely to later on in its life you know, cause um, a degree of embarrassment or at least, you know, in the worst case scenario, distress. So it must surely be foreseeable and, you know, so to, to use and publish such a photograph is an act with that risk in mind. Now, as I said, you know, nowadays, putting those pictures online I think creates the risk of, you know, the, it's very, very hard to control those images. And then, although we do have some laws, like the GDPR, for example, that, you know, can give children um, the right to erasure, say, um, then I'm not sure whether these laws adequately address this issue of Charenting, because the GDPR, I think, you know, is mostly concerned about um, digital service providers. It's mostly about um, reminding online service providers of their legal duty. But I'm not sure that the issue of charenting itself is um, adequately addressed by our current laws. I'm not sure we have clear questions about how the courts would deal with charenting nowadays. Um, and I think, you know, what, what, what's central in this question in charenting is, okay, well, I have, you know, parents' right to freedom of expression, say, you know, they want to celebrate children's, their children's achievements, and perhaps they might think that no harm is caused to their child, but then there's also children's rights to privacy at the same time. Um, what's clear from the Spencer Edlin case is that Elden is, is quite confused about the image. He has made statements uh, which show that he's happy about it, he's happy about his involvement in the Nevermind project, but at the same time he has expressed concerns about the fact that so many people have seen him naked across billboards and across other media outlets. Um, so, I think it's important to take into account that nowadays, with parents being publishers, although children are too young to access technology and perhaps appreciate the impact of technology on them, then that doesn't mean that adults' use of modern platforms or modern tools like social media cannot harm them. Alex Antonio, thank you very much. The privacy claim brought by England cricket captain Ben Stokes and his mother Deborah Stokes against The Sun was settled over the summer. The newspaper has agreed to apologise and pay substantial damages.
To remind listeners, this was the utterly uncalled for publication of the tragic family history of Deborah Stokes, whose first husband killed her two children and before killing himself. This all happened before Ben was born. The story was published as revealing a, and I quote, secret family tragedy, but the defence relied in part on the fact that the court documents from the murder trial were public records. Paul, you wrote a piece on the Inform blog setting out the nonsensical defence, as you called it. Perhaps you could give us a little bit more information now. Yes, uh, thank you for that. So the the murder-suicide took place in New Zealand in uh, 1988. Uh, Ben was born three years later um, in the UK. His uh, mother uh, and father moved over to the UK uh, for... Uh, work purposes. Uh, the uh, the thing that, and I would encourage everybody to read the informed piece that I wrote, um, purely because I wrote about the defence that uh, the son had submitted. The defence itself is galling. It's incredibly difficult to read for several reasons. The newspapers, as we know, tried to claim that this information was in the public domain, so they'd done nothing wrong by uh, repeating it, which is just utterly ludicrous. But they then tried to claim that both Deborah Stokes and Ben were some sort of subhuman public property, that they were entitled to report matters about them because the public had, according to them, some sort of right to know exactly what kind of character Ben Stokes is, what's happened to him in his life, uh, so that they can understand how he's become the character that he has become. I mean, this attitude is appalling. Um, It was incredibly difficult to read uh, and uh, deeply, deeply uh, unsatisfactory that anyone would say that about somebody else. At the same time, the son's defence was, or seemed to be, that the information they had published had nothing to do with Ben Stokes and therefore he couldn't have any sort of legitimate interest in protecting himself through the misuse of private information taught because the information wasn't about him. So I think what they were trying to do was to play the kind of O and Rhodes card in circumstances that didn't fit the fact pattern of that case at all. That case, uh, listeners will remember, involved uh, a man who had written a biography in which he detailed um, abuse that he had suffered as a child, uh, and there were concerns that his child uh, would read this information and be affected detrimentally as a consequence. Uh, That wasn't what was going on here. So you had this utterly ludicrous position for the son to adopt, which was to say, on the one hand, the public needed to know this information so that they could evaluate Ben Stokes. They could evaluate the property interest that they have in Ben Stokes. And ludicrously, the idea of Deborah Stokes being some sort of public figure herself because of the fact she gave birth to Ben, whilst at the same time saying that this information was nothing to do with Ben Stokes. Incredible that this defence was filed. And 
what motivated me to write this piece was I had seen reports, including even in The Guardian, that somehow uh, this was an unusual uh, win uh, for the Stokes is that there was something unusual in what the Sun had done because the Sun, uh, it was thought, had a good defence. It didn't have a good defence. The defence was utterly awful. And it doesn't take long to pull that defence to pieces, as I hope I showed uh, in the informed post that I wrote. I think, Paul, you're absolutely right in what you've said about this case. The, the, the defence was not only crass, it was incoherent. Um, the piece cannot at one and the same time be not about Ben Stokes and also so importantly about Ben Stokes that everybody has to read it. Um, so clearly that doesn't work. You're absolutely right, I think, as well, to trace this line of thinking back to the Rhodes case. And for me, this highlights why the Rhodes case was so problematic. The court, I think, and it was the Supreme Court ultimately in Rhodes, bent over backwards to find a way to say that Rhodes publishing his own autobiography, notwithstanding the evidence that it would likely have a seriously detrimental impact on his son, was legitimate. They wanted to accommodate Rhodes' interest in doing that. In order to do that, the doctrinal justification they came up with was the claimant in that case, the child, simply had no standing to bring the claim because the information that would negatively affect him was not about him. So he had no reasonable expectation of privacy over it and thus fell outside of the uh, elements of the claim and misuse of private information. Now, listeners to the podcast will recall that I've spoken on a number of occasions about the third-party interests doctrine, the way that children's interests are prayed in aid by adult claimants as reasons why the adult claimant should win their case, but children's interests are not taken anything like so seriously when the situation is reversed. And this is the problem. You end up with a decision like Rhodes, which is out of step, with decisions on children's interests when children are third parties, and the court ends up saying something that you must have, uh, uh, that the information must be about you in order for you to have standing, which then gets grabbed by the uh, legal team at the Sun, and they think, aha, this is our defence. We simply say that this story is not actually... Uh, does not contain information about you. And you can see the line of thinking because the events that the story refers to all occurred before Ben Stokes was born, so how can it be information about him? It's information about his family's background, but it's not specifically revealing new or private information about Ben Stokes himself. So they say, well, thus, we must have... uh, Ben Stokes simply cannot have standing to bring the claim. Now... When you look at cases like the PJS case where the Supreme Court was far clearer that the interest that is protected in privacy is to do with dignity and autonomy, as Paul points out in his piece, and that we are conceptualizing uh, harm to a family unit in a broader fashion, 
that to me that pjs style of adjudication could be built into a much more principled jurisprudence but because you have these odd cases in mpi because you have third party interest cases going off in one direction you have roads going off in a different direction and all these different cases seem to be doing is fighting individual fires the way that the court wants to fight them on that particular day, you end up with incoherent jurisprudence. And incoherent jurisprudence that lacks clear set of principles leads to pleadings like the one we saw in The Sun. It would be, I think, quite legitimate for whomever drafted the defence for The Sun to come back to Paul or me or any of us and say, the defence we drafted might be incoherent, but it reflects the law. Because the, the law on this simply doesn't have a clear set of guiding principles directing it in a particular way. I've been saying it for ages, and these are the sorts of things that happen when uh, the law develops in this fashion. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I can get on board with that, Tom. I think you've been very generous there to the to the drafting of this uh, document. Um, but of course, I would be delighted to have a conversation with whoever is behind this uh, and to continue my thinking with them. Uh, if anyone who was involved in drafting the Sun's defence is listening and would like to come on the podcast to discuss it, uh, drop us a line on Twitter or email either myself or, or Paul. Let's move on to uh, the last couple of things that I want to discuss in this newscast. Uh, and that is Kai Kurd's comedy defamation claim that's just been announced um, against fellow comedian Darius Davies over Davies' public allegations that Kurd stole his joke. Uh, the joke is about what um, compares a smart fridge to a wife or girlfriend. Um, and Davies made a number of public allegations last year that it was, in fact, from his original set, and Kurt is now um, bringing a, a defamation claim against him. Um, it's in its very early stages, this claim, we'll have to wait and see whether it continues. The, both parties are saying that they're working towards a private settlement, um, but one to watch going forward. And finally, there's a, a Danish artist who has um, been quite witty, and uh, Tom is interested in the breach of potential breach of contract claim that may be that may fall out from um, his latest art instalment. Tom, do you want to give us the details? Yes, uh, this just caught my eye. I read a, a newspaper report about it here here in uh, in England. Um, this is the Danish conceptual artist Jens Honing. Um, he was commissioned by the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Denmark to uh, replicate some of his earlier work. He's known for work focusing on uh, power and inequality in his earlier work from uh, over a decade ago. Um, he had um, fixed Danish banknotes to uh, a canvas called the work an average Danish annual income and the, the value of the notes attached to the canvas was in fact that the average uh, annual income of a Dane uh, and uh, this was displayed and he's, he's known for this work. The museum uh, commissioned him to replicate this work provided the cash 
uh, not only providing uh, equivalent of about £4,000 as an artist fee, but also the, the cash, the banknotes that he would put onto the canvas. Um, but uh, he delivered instead two blank canvases, uh, which he uh, says are entitled Take the Money and Run, and informed the museum that that is precisely what he had done with the cash. He had taken it and run. And uh, yeah, he says he's not giving it back. Uh, the museum uh, says uh, they want the money back. And they're expecting it to come back. He says he's no intention of giving the money back because uh, breaching his contract with the museum is part of the work. It is uh, 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 a work to do with poor working conditions and uh, poor pay, trying to highlight, I think, the uh, lack of pay and the poor conditions in which artists uh, work. Um, and he says that this breach of contract is part of the work, part of the concept of the work uh, itself. What I think is quite revealing um, is that the museum has, uh, despite being in dispute with the artist, displayed this work. Um, so they have displayed the two blank canvases, take the money and run. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess people may or may not be flocking to see them. I would go, uh, I'd certainly go and see this if I was uh, in, in the area. Uh, so uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what does happen. Obviously, I'm not an expert in Danish contract law. Um, uh, so we'll rem wait to see what happens here. But I did think, you know, apart from anything else. It was fun. It's very reminiscent of the um, Banksy shredded artwork, isn't it? Yes, it's exactly what I thought. I think the the, the, the meaning behind the two uh, pieces are different, but um, I had the same reaction when I when I saw the report of the the, the Banksy um, as it shredded itself just after somebody had paid a fortune for it at auction. Um, I, I, I sat there and laughed and then when I saw this report I'm afraid I had exactly the same reaction um, I, I think Banksy was making a statement it seemed to me uh, about profligacy uh, Horning is making a statement about um, poor pay and working conditions um, but uh, yeah there are remarkable similarities in, in, in the subversive uh uh, approach that they both artists have taken well i think that's a nice place to end the first newscast of the new legal year uh thank you very much tom and paul for all of your insightful comments as always thanks colette thanks colette and as ever follow us on social media at media law podcast on twitter and we will be back with more newscasts in the term to come thanks very much bye